Welcome to Pastor Matters, the podcast of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We hope this conversation will both equip and encourage you to lead healthy churches that make disciples for the glory of God. I'm Brandon Ward. And I'm Ron Jorlock. We want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. Over the past few weeks, we have been highlighting theological education, and we're concluding that today by having a conversation on pastors and biblical counseling with a friend and co-worker, Dr. Tate Cockrell. Dr. Cockrell serves as Associate Professor of Counseling and is the Director of the DMAN Program here at Southeastern. My first question for you, Dr. Cockrell, is how do you do what you do? Because I'm not entirely convinced that you're not a robot. Or a, t- <laughs> or a twin. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you do so much, including teaching, overseeing our demon program. You do counseling sessions, speak at AMS events, and, and appear on podcasts. And I, I just need you to tell me your secrets because it's not even noon. And we're Ronjor and I are still talking about how we need to get caffeinated because there's just so much. Well, first of all, uh, Brandon and Roger, thanks for the invitation uh, to be here. I'm a little bit of a freak, and everybody in my office knows that. How you do it is you don't sleep. So um, <laughs> there it is. I I I I am a little bit of a freak of nature. I don't. I only need, and and need is even a a, a bad word there. I only sleep about four hours a night. So oh, that's boy. it's just a. I'm out. Uh, yeah, I just. <laughs> My wife needs a tight eight hours, you know, every single night. I can't, no matter what time I go to bed, I can only sleep for about four hours at a clip. So yeah, I'm totally out. I yeah. love wow. sleep too much. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. It, 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 it's amazing how much more you can do if you, you know, don't need that additional four hours of sleep that everybody else in the world needs. So yeah, yeah. that's 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 one of the that's secrets. The secret sauce. The second secret sauce is you have great assistants around you who yeah. help manage your life for you. So that's yeah. I, I could not do nearly what I what I do if I didn't have, you know, a great staff, you know, we're yeah. blessed to have a great staff here at Southeastern. So if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be able to be nearly as effective mm-hmm. as I am. So absolutely, sure. I depend on them immensely every day. Well, thank you again, brother, for all that you do here at Southeastern and for, for joining today's discussion. So we're having this discussion on theological education, highlighting what it is. And and so today we're, we're having that discussion on biblical counseling. So Let's just start by maybe you just sharing a little bit about your own journey. Like, what made you want to pursue a theological education in counseling and now teach yeah. it here yeah. at Southeastern? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's it's a, a kind of a dual thing. It was how God called me to ministry uh, in general, and then a particular calling to do theological uh, education specifically. Uh, without sharing the entire story, the short answer is, is that um, my brother died at the age of 19 when oh. I was 16, and it profoundly impacted our family. The, mm-hmm. the, his loss profoundly impacted our family. And in the midst of that loss, um, very loving, very kind, very well-meaning and well-intentioned pastors gave really, really bad advice mm-hmm. to my family. And as a result of that, it exacerbated the effects of the grief. And God used that whenever I became a believer and my mom got help from a a Christian counselor and and God called me to ministry. And when God first called me to ministry, I thought there were 
I thought there were kind of three jobs you could do. You were either a, a preacher, a music director, or uh, like a missionary. Um, and it, like even if you were a youth pastor, that was just a baby preacher. You were just, you know, you basically got to called you to preach. You were just, you hadn't made it to the big leagues yet. You were in the mm-hmm. minors, you know. But I kind of thought those were the three things that that you could do. And uh, I went to a, um, I went to a Christian university, uh, William Carey University in Mississippi. And uh, after one year. Uh, did a little bit of counseling myself and really saw the impact of that, saw the impact of it on my family, and God began to kind of crystallize a call to do counseling, but specifically not just to do counseling, but to do counselor education. Like, you know, Tate, if there's anything that you could do that would help prevent the kinds of things that happen to your family, this would be a, a great way, you know, for you to do that. So, uh, I basically knew that to be able to do that, I was going to have to go all the way through and get all of my education. So I started my undergrad straight out of high school, and I didn't stop until I got my PhD. There are all kinds of different classes, uh, counseling classes here at, at Southeastern. What what are some of the classes that you teach, and, and how do they help to equip students uh, who are aspiring to be counselors and even pastors? Yeah, it's great. So um, I... We we do our intro class uh, a little differently than a lot of our intro classes. So all of our professors in counseling here uh, kind of participate in the intro class. So I will always have at least one or two sections of the intro class. But we all kind of teach whatever our specialization is for that particular intro class. Um, and I love that class because mm-hmm. that's the class that all of our seminary has to take. And so predominantly we're not talking to people who are going to be counselors. They're mm-hmm. pastors, right. missionaries, evangelists, youth workers, uh, you know, elders. I mean, it's every kind of ministry that you can think of. Uh, and that's kind of the all-encompassing, like 30,000-foot flyover of this is what counseling is. Here's how you recognize your limitations. This is kind of basically how you can do good care and counseling for um, individuals who are in your church, regardless of what role you have. So it's just kind of the basic fundamentals of of counseling. So I really love that class a lot, and I usually teach at least one or two sections of that. Um, my area of specialization, a lot of times you have counselors who have areas of specialization. So my area of specialization is marriage and family. So most of the other classes that I teach here at the seminary are marriage and family in nature. So I teach marital and premarital counseling. Uh, that class deals specifically with, you know, how do you prepare individuals who are going to be preparing people to get married right. or who are already married, who are dealing with, you know, either needing marriage enrichment, they need a good marriage to be made great, or doing marriage restoration, it's a really bad marriage or a, a marriage that's in crisis, and uh, helping them to kind of restore a marriage to, to be what God wants it to be. So I teach that class. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of family systems classes, which are, you know, in marriage and family, you know, counseling, we try to teach our students to have a systemic approach. Uh, no individual exists as an island unto himself or herself. Mm-hmm. They exist as a part of a myriad of systems you know, in their life, whether it's a spousal subsystem, a family system, an extended family system, a community mm-hmm. system like in their church or in their mm-hmm. county, city, community, whatever it is. And so the two family systems class basically help uh, students know how to rightly see individuals as a part of of a greater whole. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing to me uh, the number of like pastors who will take that class, and it like it helps them for their congregational care. Like right. many of them who have been a part of 
kind of family churches where they've got three or four families that are in their mm-hmm. church that are really prominent. And then they learn family systems and they're like, man, for the first time, like I really understand <laughs> the reason why my church ended up the way that it did because yeah. I see how all of these systems interact with one another and how it, how from generation to generation these things get passed on, you yeah. know, from from one family to the next. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, you, you mentioned a little bit of your testimony and how you had pastors in your uh, in your life that that didn't give the best counsel. Should pastors be the primary counselors? Uh, I mean, just just not just even from your experience, but even just uh, you know as a, as a counselor yourself, do you think that that should be uh, where counsel should come from uh, in the church, and and why or why not? Yeah, it's a it's a really tricky question to answer, Ron Jor. Here's what I would say: I'm gonna I'm gonna flip the terminology on you a little bit. And what I'm gonna mm-hmm. say is, I think pastors should be the primary caregivers in their church. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean they should always be the primary counselors. Uh, I think every pastor is responsible to care for his flock. And that's going to that's gonna involve various levels of counseling. No pastor is going to be able to get out of the ministry without doing counseling of some sort. Mm-hmm. And the smaller the staff, the greater the amount you're going to do that. For a right. single staff or maybe a two- or three-staff church, uh, every pastor is going to spend probably 30% of his time doing counseling of various nature, sometimes formal, sometimes informal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every pastor is responsible to care for his flock, whether he should be um, the primary counselor in his church, I think that's a harder question to answer. Sometimes it's the only option. Like that's, he has to do it. There's nobody else in the church. There's nobody else in the community. So if if the pastor doesn't do it, no one else is going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. But I do believe there are some inherent difficulties uh, with that. And, and I don't like the difficulties, but they are realities. And that mm-hmm. is the minute that I as a pastor become kind of the formal counselor for this member of my congregation, and now they're opening up to me about these issues in their life. While I, as a a trained professional, have the ability to separate them from their issue, and every time I see them, I don't see their issue, I just see them the person, Mm -hmm. they don't do such a good job of being able to make that distinction. So in their mind, every time they see me as the pastor, they're thinking, I'm thinking about their issue. And I'm not. I'm I'm genuinely not doing that. But, Mm -hmm. But they're their fear is that that's what's happening. So it is a very common thing when the pastor becomes kind of the primary counselor in somebody's life that that relationship gets really awkward. We call it a dual relationship, and it can often get very, very awkward. And so my suggestion to most pastors is, um, and I'll tell you a couple of reasons why, but my suggestion for most pastors is if if they could kind of serve as the point person for care and for initial counseling to kind of assess where the congregant is, where their where their church member is, but to try not to spend more than three or four sessions with any one person or family in the church. And one is for the reason I just told you, that inherent mm-hmm. risk that comes about. But the second thing is, um, you know, the, I think that the pastor needs to spend the bulk of his time doing only what he can do. And the reality is he is the only one who can stand up on Sunday morning and and feed the flock the word, right? Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't take long for you to take on three or four cases right. where the next thing you know, counseling is what's driving the majority of your week. Mm-hmm. And the more of that you do, the more of that people get helped, and then yeah. they begin telling other people in the congregation how much you help them. And the next thing you know, it just becomes unmanageable. And mm-hmm. they don't have time to do the the thing that they're the only person that's going to be able to stand up on Sunday morning and deliver the word. And so 
Primary caregiver, yes. Primary counselor, probably not. Although the initial point of contact for assessment and figuring out what needs to happen next, I think that's a great idea. It's a great great process to kind of go through. Yeah, yeah. So, so when should a pastor go outside? Like, when should a pastor say, "Hey, you know, uh, this is this is this is more than I can bear. This is more than I can handle. Uh, I think that you should seek professional help." And 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 maybe a follow up to that question is. Um, What's that dynamic then for the pastor, you know, as the members going through, uh, uh, you know, seeing a professional counselor and so on? How, how does that how – do, how does the pastor shepherd through that process? Really appreciate the question and especially, Ron Jor, the second part of that question. So a couple of just guidelines that we help pastors know for kind of referring, you know, like whenever it – you know, they need to kind of let go mm-hmm. in terms of being the counselor. One – if it's beyond their expertise. You know, it's just an area where, you know, God's just not giving them enough training. There are just some things where you could actually do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're trying to help. Again, you're well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. But if you don't understand the dynamics of, you know, neuropsychology and addiction and sure. abuse and trauma and those sorts of things, you might think you're actually helping, but in fact, you're hurting. And so mm-hmm. if it exceeds kind of your level of training or experience, and that's probably something where, you know, you want to hand that off. It's mm-hmm. If it's a situation where the member is is too close to you, it's a situation where objectivity would be really, really difficult. Like you're so close to this member, you've known them for a really, really long time. Objectivity might be difficult. You know, you might need to say, you know what, you are as much a friend. Uh, you know, we have a more intimate relationship that, that would uh, preclude objectivity. Mm-hmm. Then we, we probably need to refer that. Or if it's a situation where you see this is not going to be something that we can handle in three to four sessions. This is going to be this is going to be long term. Like this is you're going to need a lot more than what I could give. And it wouldn't be fair to the remainder of the congregation that you know one fifth of your week is spent caring for one person or one family. Then you know once kind of an initial assessment is made, it'd be really good for you to go ahead and hand that that person off because it would be it would be a little bit much. Mm-hmm. And I, but I. Roger, I really appreciate the second part of your question, and that is, but what needs to happen when the referral happens? Because here's what a lot of pastors do. A lot of pastors, they may do the initial assessment, they have the initial conversation, and it's like, okay, we've decided we're going to refer, and their mentality is they've made the referral, now they're mm-hmm. done. Right. Yep. You know, yep. and they've passed the baton. They've yeah. passed the baton. Yeah. You know, my job is done. And they may have done a great job at, at doing the referral, may have really helped get the person connected and everything. But, you know, we say to our students all the time, uh, even after you refer, even if you're not responsible to counsel, you're always responsible to still care. Mm-hmm. So after that referral is made, I always encourage folks, you know, wait a couple of weeks, do an initial follow-up. Hey, you know, how did your first session go? Did you talk to the person? You know, just a simple first follow-up just to make sure they actually went, you know, because a lot of times you can make the best referral in the world and then the person gets cold feet, they get nervous about it, and then they never go. And the pastor's thinking, oh, like I did a good job handing this person off. And they never went and talked to anybody. And so now they're just fighting whatever this issue is all by themselves. And that's not going to be helpful. So doing something a couple of weeks later and then just maybe setting some reminders for that pastor that just says, hey, a follow-up phone call, a follow-up email, you know, a conversation, you know, after church on a Sunday, just a very quick, you know, hey, how's it going? Just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you. Is there, you know, is there any way that, you know, that I can help? Mm -hmm. And in, in best practices, what, what is even I would say this is like the the gold standard of what we would want to see happen. 
and that is if the pastor or other staff member can partner with whoever that counselor is, get a confidentiality agreement, you know, a waiver signed so that even a pastor could communicate with a counselor to be able to say, hey, how best can we as a church come alongside what you're doing as a counselor? Mm, I, have, I have several arrangements with churches in the area where, you know, I, I kind of do like a, almost like a treatment team, like with mm-hmm. a, a director of counseling or a pastor to say, hey, you know, I, I saw this member X number of times, but here's how your church can come alongside this person. You know, that way counseling isn't this thing that's just existing externally to what's right. going on True. in their in their biblical community, even better if we can tie those together. And so if a pastor could even have an occasional conversation with a counselor just to say, hey, give me an update, you know, mm-hmm. with what's going on with this member and let me know if there's anything we can do to help. So mm-hmm. we can come alongside, you know, the work that you're doing as a counselor. So there's continuity between what they're hearing from the pastor, the church, and what they're hearing also from the counselor or the counseling agency. Right. Yeah. Are. That's very so you've good. been teaching counseling for years. Do you think pastors Pastors receive enough training in counseling. I know we've mentioned that part of the the curriculum for many uh, seminaries is an intro to, to biblical counseling. Right. I've spoken to many pastors who, after graduating, wish they would have taken more of the electives. When I even started my theological education, I actually started as a biblical counseling in that concentration. Uh, so do you think that, that pastors get enough training in this? I absolutely do not think they get enough training in this. And my experience is, Brandon, that I have I have more pastors who say they needed more training in counseling than not. You know, in fact, just about every pastor that I talk to whenever they learn that I'm a counselor and we we have that conversation, I mean, it's a very rare pastor that says, you know, oh, well, you know, I got plenty of training in my MDiv or in my MA. Pretty yeah. much the only ones that would say that is that pastor that did like an MDiv in biblical counseling. You know, like they specialized in counseling. For most pastors who did like a, just a basic MDiv or an MDiv in preaching or, you know, MDiv in theology or something like that, they're going to be required to usually take one class in counseling, and it isn't nearly enough. It's a great start, yeah. and I am glad that we have at least a one class as the requirement, and we try to pack as much as we can into that one class, but it isn't, it isn't nearly enough. And it is one of my recommendations to, you know, um, my – my intro students who are in there, I tell them, listen, even if it's not in your degree plan, even if it's not in your degree plan, if you could at least take the marital and premarital class, Mm -hmm. if you could at least take the uh, emotional disorders class, if you could at least take the addiction class. So I'll give them like four or five additional counseling classes and say, look, while you're here in seminary, fairly easy for you to add an extra class here or there, a lot harder once you get out there in the field and you're no longer in school, a lot harder to go back and get that training. And there's other options, right? So you can always audit courses. That's exactly right. Certificate programs. There are things out there that exist to be supplement, not having to go back in and get another degree in order to get the training for sure. Well, think also, and and I say this to to students, you, you get the opportunity to learn how to preach. You get the opportunity to learn um, you know, how to do leadership and so on. You get to, you know, you get uh, classes in pastoral theology and things like that. And all that says is I've got skills, I've got tools. Yep. But if I don't know people, 
none of those things matter. That's right. You know, That's right. I, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm going to give you my exegesis, you know, of the of the passage. But I have no idea how to apply it to your life right. because I don't know people. I That's don't right. know who you are and, right. and, and so on. And even what you're talking about in terms of systems and 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 all of that, you know, understanding the the network you know, of relationships, uh, you know, that has an effect on on how we apply the scriptures. Uh, so whether we're talking about the pulpit or whether we're talking about the, you know, the the the, um, the office, you know, in the pastor's office, uh, wherever we're applying the word, wherever the ministry of the word is 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 going about, we need to know who people are. Right. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've I've told my students, you know, take you know a class in understanding anthropology, take a class in understanding you know sociology, right. you know, and and of course even in counseling, uh, just to know who you're talking to. That's right. Uh, and that doesn't always happen automatically. And so if you get an opportunity to take uh, more classes, if you get an opportunity to get a little bit more instruction, uh, take advantage of that of that opportunity. The other good thing about that, Ron George is they often in in a lot of these counseling classes they often learn a lot about themselves and so mm-hmm. what 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 we often find in ministry is what's going to cost a guy his ministry more than his inability to be able to preach is his inability to be able to relate well to people. Mm-hmm. And so if he can't resolve conflict, if he doesn't know how to get along with people, if he if he doesn't understand himself well enough. So sometimes as we're teaching these students how to understand others, I can't tell you the number of times that I have students at the end of the semester who came up to me. I had, it just happened last week hmm. after we were finishing up a marital premarital class, and I had three or four you know uh, guys who came up to me after a class and just said, I've learned so much about me as a result of this class. Wow. And and one of my students was getting ready to get married, and he said, I'm still pretty petrified about getting married, but I'm not nearly as petrified as I was whenever I first began the class. You know, so having those extra classes also is it's a it's a good opportunity for them to even know themselves a little bit better so mm-hmm. they can even begin to make some changes if there are things that could be obstacles for them being successful in ministry over the long haul. Yeah, yeah. So so for uh, folks who may not be able to to get into the classroom, uh, what are some resources that you would say, hey, if, if, if at the very least, yeah. uh, uh, you know, get get a hold of these types of things? So a couple of things I can think of right off the bat that, that I recommend pretty pretty regularly. So Dr. Kristen Kellen, who's one of our professors here, mm-hmm. uh, uh, part one of three authors in a, a new book that actually just came out this last year called The Gospel for Disordered Lives. Mm-hmm. Excellent resource. Uh, very good overview of the entire kind of biblical counseling sphere. Covers micro skills and, you know, knowing well how to listen and, and kind of problem solve and knowing how to apply the word and understand anthropology. They just do a fantastic job in that book. So that, that's, a, that's a great resource. Uh, Robert Kellerman has a great book entitled mm-hmm. Equipping Counselors for Your Church. Yeah. It's a great book to help pastors know how to empower people in their congregation so that others can help shoulder that load mm-hmm. of doing counseling. And so that's a really great resource for helping pastors know how to do that. Um, there's a great book that I've been recommending for years. So June Hunt. A uh, longtime biblical counselor mm-hmm. from Texas uh, has a radio show called Hope for the Heart. She's fantastic. Yeah. Years ago, she wrote a book entitled Counseling Through Your Bible, and it basically has the top 50 issues that counselors face. Hmm. Anxiety, anger, depression, uh, abuse, uh, addiction, like the top 50 uh, issues. And under each one of those issues in this book, 
She gives scripture verses for each one of them, questions to ask if someone is struggling with that. She kind of gives a brief overview of like what it like what is depression, what causes it, you know, how do we treat it? And so for somebody that's kind of a novice at counseling but needs a good starting point mm-hmm. for the top 50 issues that people would face on a day-to-day basis in counseling, they can immediately go to that. That, mm-hmm. that It's called a handbook for counseling through your Bible. And so basically you just go to the handbook, open it up, go to the table of contents, find the issue. And it's like a good just three to four page summary for – it's like a cheat – it's like, it's like yeah. the cheat code, you know. Yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> basically, you know, I, I train counselors at my church. We give it as a gift when every counselor gets through with their training – I say, this needs to be your best friend. Like mm-hmm. every time you get ready to go into council, you need to have this in your lap or on the table next to you. And if you know what the issue is before you go into the counseling session, just review the pages on that issue. And there are other just kind of basic biblical helps that are in there as well. And then kind of a, just a good overarching resource for uh, pastors and people in ministry who are doing counseling. So CCEF, the mm-hmm. Christian Counseling Education Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, they're just a wonderful organization that are, are filled with very reputable biblical counselors, respected. The resources that they produce are, are really, really well done. Um, and so you can go to CCEF's website and download just a host of written materials, videos, you know, helps with training, all of that. And you can pretty much trust. I mean, I, I've i never found anything on their website that I right. didn't find to be very, very helpful. And so just yeah. as kind of a clearinghouse, you, know, you go to Amazon and you type in biblical counseling, like you have no idea. That, it, that stuff hasn't been vetted. You don't know who those people are that are producing those resources. CCEF does a really good job of vetting the stuff that goes on their website. And so you can trust, you know, the stuff that's on there. So that's a pretty good resource as well. That's good. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about abuse. You know, abuse has been a problem in, in our churches for decades, maybe even longer. Uh, so much, even more recently, has come into light in many churches about abuse that has been going on for for years. So how can pastors and church leaders not only shepherd victims of abuse and counsel them, but how can they also prevent abuse from happening in the first place by training, maybe training up the, the people, leaders in their church? Yeah, that's good. It's a great question. Um, and it is, it's a job, honestly, where the church is, has kind of had a pretty absent voice for a while. And so it's a, it's a, fair, it's a fair question to ask. I, I think, number one, uh, it, pastors need to recognize their, their limitations of, of, of kind of understanding the effects of abuse. And so I want pastors, again, this goes back to that care versus counsel, I want them to press in to caring for abuse victims, you know, uh, you know, believe at least initially you know i don't i don't i don't i don't agree with a a blanket you just believe anything that anybody tells you you know i mean the scriptures are pretty clear about that you know mm-hmm. somebody sounds right until you hear the other side so mm-hmm. but an initial believing validating uh loving well that person that comes to a pastor and says you know hey uh, i've been abused and and i need help so i think that's a, that's a that's a really good starting place um but then connecting them to the help that they need is really where pastors could help the most. So, you know, having people in your church that are specifically trained to know how to deal with abuse victims at, at the church where I'm the counseling minister, Faith Baptist in Youngsville, we have a domestic violence team. We have trained advocates. We have, you know, individuals who counsel specifically with individuals that mm-hmm. have been abused and who have been traumatized. And and so there's specialists who know all the ins, all the ins and outs in that. 
as much as this is occurring, and the stats are staggering, right? The, and the stats right. have been fairly consistent over probably the last four decades. The stats are fairly consistent. One in three women, one in five boys are going to be abused by the time they're 18 years of age. Think about that. One in three women, one in five boys. So for us not to take the time to identify resources that we then could connect those members to, to say, you know, hey, we're going to care for you, we're going to pray for you, but we're also going to connect you to people that can help, uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a really, really big deal. Mm-hmm. I think another aspect when we just move from the shepherding side to the prevention side is we just have to do a better job of educating um, church members on what what is a healthy marriage? What are healthy relationships? Mm-hmm. It's it, it's crazy to me that that in the church when I I do uh, like weekend marriage conferences and I'll go into a church over a weekend and you know we'll we'll talk about what a healthy marriage looks like and it's amazing how many people will come up in the middle of the conference and they've said we. We don't ever hear this type of teaching. You know, wow. maybe it's a, a, a spot hit, you know, here or there. But so much of abuse begins when individuals just don't rightly understand their roles within the context. There are really just crazy views about, you know, uh, complementarianism that, you know, puts the husband as a king and a potentate and a dictator that, mm-hmm. you know, can do and say whatever right. he wants. And it just right. creates this cascading effect, uh, you know, all the way down. But then the other side of that is sometimes the abuse is there long before any relationships even take place. And so it's not about education and understanding relationships. It's about an individual that is broken, hurt, has experienced abuse themselves. And because we don't do a good enough job at providing biblical accountability and biblical community, those people go unnoticed. And so I think for pastors to get really, really intentional they can't know every single person in their congregation, mm-hmm. but somebody ought to know every single member of their congregation, and they ought to know what's going on. One of the sure dead giveaways of abuse is the isolation that occur- that occurs when abuse is going on. Mm-hmm. You know that individuals don't have relationships with anybody outside of those abusive relationships because the abuser is going to isolate that individual who's being abused. Mm-hmm. So the more that a pastor can do to create those avenues of biblical accountability and a biblical community so that they can know those kinds of things, the greater the likelihood that we're going to be able to prevent that. Because sometimes it has nothing to do with relational dynamics. It has to do with something that's internal to the sin going on in this individual's life that nobody else knows about, mm-hmm. and, he has no, and he or she has no accountability in their life. Right. And for our listeners, we actually did an episode recently recently uh, with Dr. Kristen Kellen on how pastors can shepherd uh, victims of abuse. So I would encourage you, if you're interested, to go back and check out that. There's some really helpful stuff in that as well. Mm-hmm. So ministry not only can be, it is difficult for pastors and, and, and leaders. They're shepherding and caring for people who are hurt and that are often very broken. And pastors aren't immune to feeling the weight of that. I mean, we just in this episode, we've talked about abuse talked about addictions. We've talked about, you know, marriage, marriages in the church crumbling apart, and pastors can carry the weight of all of that. So how, so how can pastors make sure that they're keeping an eye on their own mental health? Because not only are they, you know, caring for people in their churches that are struggling, but they have lives of their own, families of their own, issues of their own that they're also carrying. And I think even just the past year or two, we've seen kind of the, the ripple effects of, of pastors that are just burnt out. 
So, so how can pastors make sure they're keeping an eye on their own mental health? What are some things they can do to ensure they are staying healthy? And, and would you even recommend that they, that pastors seek out counseling to, to make sure that they have someone that they can, they can talk to about these things? Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it is uh, in our intro uh, class, one of the things that I, I say to uh, every class is if you're, you know, if you're going to be a pastor, that when you arrive on the field of whatever, you know, wherever you're going to serve as a pastor, when, uh, when you begin to think about it's now time for me to go set up, you know, service with my primary care physician in this new place that I've moved to. Uh, the second call that you ought to make after you set up your uh, primary care physician is you ought to set up a relationship with a counselor. Mm-hmm. Like you ought to just do that. It ought to be automatic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, and, and the example that I use that usually communicates very well is it's easier to change the oil in your car than it is to rebuild the engine. Mm-hmm. And so do they want to change the oil of their personal, emotional, relational, you know, spiritual health? Do they want to change the oil, you know, to prevent the engine from blowing up, or do they want to deal with the catastrophic consequences of the engine blowing up because they didn't deal with, you know, with those issues? Wow. It it is a it is a big problem, Brandon, in in the convention right now. Uh, I I just spoke to uh, about seventy five pastors in Virginia just this week. Uh, the topic of the conference was kind of the emotional health, soul care of the pastor. Um, and the the most recent stat from uh, Barna, thirty eight percent of pastors considered leaving the ministry altogether. Not not just changing churches. Thirty eight percent of pastors are con- they they considered leaving the ministry last wow. year in twenty twenty one. Nine percent increase from January to October of twenty twenty one. Our pastors are tired. They're burned out. They're emotionally spent. They've got decision fatigue. Um, you know, many of them feel, you know, even betrayed by members of their congregation. You know, this whole COVID thing and politics mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. Many of them are they're just they're just running on fumes, and so um, many of them are operating from a a position not of strength and health, but they're operating from a position of of deficit, right? And and by God's grace, we're so grateful that you know Scripture tells us that you know, and, and our strength that, you know, that, and our weakness that he's made strong, you know, that, right. that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely true. But there's a difference between being weak and, and unhealthy. Like, yeah. I think those are, I think those are two different things. Mm-hmm. What we have right now, and Peter Scazzaro says this in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, Peter mm-hmm. Scazzaro says, an emotionally unhealthy leader is someone who has a being with God that is insufficient to sustain his doing for God. Mm. And that is what we have with a lot of pastors. We have a lot of pastors who are doing a lot of great things, but their own personal communion with the Lord and their own emotional health is suffering to the point that it's it's now going to start affecting their doing, mm. you know, their effectiveness. And and so we we have to help pastors learn to get um, emotionally healthy. I think about just a few, you know, just just easy things. One, helping pastors understand that their identity is found in Christ and their identity is not found in their ministry. Mm-hmm. Many ministers define their success based on nickels, numbers, and noses in their church, and they forget that their definition of success is faithfulness to the call that God has given them. And so God lands them in some place where the population is shrinking and, you know, people aren't moving to their town, they're moving out of their town, mm-hmm. and they're being faithful, but, you know, they're not growing as much as the church in that town one county over that's exploding. But mm-hmm. part of the reason they're exploding is because you know, their populations increase by 30%. They begin to beat themselves up. They feel 
they feel bad about you know their effectiveness and can I really do this and did God really call me and all that's driving that is they're really finding their joy their happiness their fulfillment their identity they're not finding that in Jesus they're finding it in this def- this uh, unhealthily defined yeah. uh, definition of success mm-hmm. you know that I don't that I don't think is good and so I think helping them you know, find their joy and identity in Jesus. I think that's a, that's a good, necessary first step. Yeah. I think one of the things I talk about in all my classes, and I do it in my conferences as well, is helping pastors set boundaries that protect the important things in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, I would remind our pastors who are listening today that one of the qualifications for a pastor elder is that he be able to care well for his family. Yes, our Many of our pastors believe that it is a occupational hazard that his past, that his family gets neglected as a result of the ministry. The scriptures just don't teach that. They mm-hmm. don't teach ministry at the expense of right. your family. Do I believe that our families make sacrifices when we're, when we're in the ministry? Absolutely they do. My wife and kids have made numerous sacrifices over the years because of my roles in ministry. But it can't always be the family that makes the sacrifice with never the return that, that that comes back. So are there times when I have to miss something that's going on in my kid's life or my wife's life because of an emergency in ministry? Yes. But what pastors often do is because of the demands of ministry, suddenly everything gets defined as an emergency. So just because somebody needs something in their church, that means that they have to be the one that goes and does it. They have to be the hero. They have to be the savior. They have to be the rescuer. They have to be the one that's always there. And then what ends up happening is their family gets the leftovers. Mm-hmm. And so Dave Ramsey has this great statement that, you know, he he says about finances, you ought to tell your finances where you want them to go. You shouldn't ask them where they went, right? Tell your money where you want it to go. Don't ask it where it, where it went. And I tell pastors they have to do the same thing with their time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is a date night with your wife as important as your deacon's meeting? Um, some of them might answer the no to that question. And as the marriage and family guy, I would say absolutely date night with your wife is just as important as mm-hmm. a a deacon's meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you investing in the life of your in the in the life of your kids is absolutely as important mm-hmm. as you attending that you know that conference or that associational meeting or the prep time for your sermon. Yeah. They're absolutely there needs to be a prioritization and then a setting of boundaries that protect that. You know mm-hmm. that say you know I'm going to schedule those things. I'm going to put them on my calendar to make sure that I uh, do the things that are that are good. It amazes mm-hmm. me how many pastors have the check engine light on in their lives, yeah. and they just kind of push it, right. push it back right. to the point where it's it's just too late. Right. Like it, you're, you're completely overwhelmed that's because right. you've ignored it for so yep. long. That's yeah. exactly right. Well, most pastors don't, most pastors don't see the value of rest, mm-hmm. rejuvenation, uh, leisure, you know, in in their mind, the sacrifice of ministry, like that's what we're, you know, that's yeah. the cross we're called to bear. And by the way, that is partly true. Yeah. Uh, great book, I would recommend to to um, to your listeners, Christopher Ash's book, Zeal Without Burnout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fantastic book. Mm-hmm. And in the book, one of the things that he says is, we are called to sacrifice. But he has this term that I love. He says. It has to be sustainable sacrifice. Yeah. And what many pastors do is they sacrifice so much 
that they burn out, they lose their family, right. they have a moral failure. I mean, their life just gets in shambles. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are called to sacrifice, but it has to be a sacrifice yeah. that's sustainable. And we have to remember that Jesus set the model. You yeah. know, there. I had a guy ask me one time, like I was talking about pastoral health with a bunch of pastors, and you know, he kind of took offense to this idea that you know we're we're called to lay our lives down for the sheep, and that's what Jesus did. And so if that means that we lose everything, you know, that's the cost. And 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 I just said, you know, I I I understand how you would say that, but the reality is, it was Jesus who said to his disciples, "Listen, guys, we got to go be alone for a little bit. We haven't even had time to eat. It's yeah. time for us to break break away from the crowd." Yeah, it was Jesus Himself who said right. that. So. Mm-hmm. If Jesus, who is God and who actually, as God, doesn't need rest and isn't dust the way we are, if he says, guys, we need to go break away and we need to take a rest, I'm pretty sure we have to do the same and thing. And just to take some of the, the you know, the, 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 the spotlight off of pastors, churches need to provide spaces for pastors to actually do it. And That's they need exactly to understand right. one of the things that, that Ron George says on this podcast so much is that we're creatures mm-hmm. and churches need to realize that as well and provide spaces and sabbaticals and times where pastors are able to break away. That's yeah, right. yeah. I, I agree with that 100%. So many of our pastors, they don't rest and they don't take breaks because they are, they're not allowed to do that. You yeah. know, they are they are on the expectation from their church is that they are on call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 365 days a year. Yeah. Yeah. The, the last thing too, Brandon, I think that I would say just about, you know, helping pastors protect themselves and make sure that they're they're healthy and and every stat for probably the last two decades has has shown this. The reality is most pastors don't have a good friend in their life. They don't have mm-hmm. any kind of biblical accountability and friendship and people that are speaking truth, you know, into their lives. And the reality is um, we are not meant to live this life as islands and as ministers of the gospel. We don't somehow levitate above those expectations of needing people in our life and having people in our life that when they see things that are unhealthy and that need to change, that they love us enough to be able to mm-hmm. say that. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, a lot of pastors have been doing – they've been pastoring and ministering for long enough that they – they don't have a lot of those people in in their life. You know, they don't feel comfortable having people in their congregation and maybe their friends are a long way away. And so they, you know, they're not close enough to them. Mm-hmm. That is a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've, it's, I've just never seen it be good over the long haul when a pastor says, I've been doing ministry for X number of years, but I don't have a good friend. It mm-hmm. almost always ends in some kind of disaster, mm-hmm. either moral failure them burning out. I mean, something bad happening Hmm. usually comes about as a result of that kind of isolation and that kind of loneliness for the pastor. Mm -hmm. So let's bring all this together. You know, we've been talking about, you know, things that we we, we do here at Southeastern, uh, topics that are covered in counseling. We've talked about uh, just some issues in the church and how pastors can respond to those things. How has Southeastern helped you do this? How has Southeastern helped you equip students pursuing not only counseling, but but ministry? Uh, and what is your hope each and every semester? You know, we're at the end of the semester here. We're about to have some students graduating tomorrow. What What is your hope for students who graduate from our programs here? Hmm. Yeah, it's, man, it's just a couple of great questions there. One, uh, I think uh, Southeastern has kind of helped me fulfill the mission that God's placed on, on my life by empowering us to be able to say what we do in counseling is necessary. Like it's 
it's important. You know, it's this is not counseling isn't just something for folks out there in the world. Like they they value what we do in counseling. Our administration is just unbelievably supportive of what we do with our students and what we do for our students in terms of helping them to be emotionally, relationally, spiritually healthy as it relates, you know, as it relates to counseling. Um, and I think the the thing that's really cool about Southeastern and one thing that we do in our in our, uh, in our counseling programs is that we see it, and I say this all the time, we see it missionally, right? Like counseling isn't just for the sake of me ministering to this person in my congregation or this counselee that's coming in. It's I'm doing this for the sake of the gospel. Like mm-hmm. one of the things we know is that for evangelism where apologetics used to be our first open door for sharing the gospel. Today, I would say probably the greatest open door that we have are the felt needs and experiences of people. Mm. Like the number of times that the first conversation that I have with someone that I get to share the gospel is about some need that they have in their life. And Mm. so Southeastern's focus on go and on taking the gospel in every avenue of our life, including every single time that we sit down with a counselee, uh, I think perfectly aligns with who I am as um, you know a theological educator and a you know and a practitioner of uh, of counseling. And what do I hope for uh, for our students who graduate? I hope that they develop a heart for the people that they serve. Mm. Nothing breaks my heart more than to hear. And you, you, you know, it, they say it kind of half in jest, but I think. There's an old saying that says, many a truth is said in jest, but I hate it whenever I hear the the minister who says occasionally, you know, I would love ministry if it weren't for the people. Mm-hmm. You know, like they want to be the guy who stands up and preaches. They want to be the guy who stands up and teaches, but they don't want to be bothered with the right. messiness of relationships. Right. You know, like if I could just, you know, interact with the word and study and do hermeneutics and then stand up and teach people, but didn't actually have to get in the messiness of their life, then things would be uh, things would be a lot better. I'll just leave that the messiness of that to other people. I really hope that our graduates leave here with a real love and compassion and concern for the people that they that they serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth is that, you know, um, the Scripture doesn't say, by this will all men know that you are my disciples by how many churches you plant. Yeah, That's not what the Word says, right? John 13, 34, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. And that love oftentimes is best expressed in us getting into the messiness of other people's lives. And so I really hope for every single one of our graduates when they leave here that they love the Word Mm -hmm. and then they love the people that that Word is going to minister to. Mm -hmm. And they use the Word to minister to those people in in very real and personal ways. Mm. Well, that'll do it. Dr. Carkle, thank you again for taking the time to join today's discussion. If you're listening and you're considering starting or furthering your theological education, consider Southeastern. We offer a variety of de- degree programs focusing on biblical counseling. Come learn from our amazing faculty, which includes Drs. Cockrell, Sam Williams, Brad Hambrick, Kristen Kellen, and many more. Uh, learn more about how Southeastern can equip you to fulfill the mission by visiting SEBT. We have finally concluded our series highlighting the importance of theological education. We hope this series has been helpful to you. Uh, We will be taking a break over the next few weeks, and we want to encourage you to go back and listen to any episodes you might have missed this season. We have some really exciting topics and guests lined up for next season, so make sure you are subscribed and staying up to date on the latest content. 
We want to thank you again for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. If you found today's episode helpful, consider leaving us a five-star rating and review. We'd love to hear any feedback you'd be willing to give us. As always, it is our mission at the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership to equip and encourage pastors, and I hope we've done that today with our conversation. And as always, my brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.